Well, 2 Kings chapter 6 is our study tonight, and we won't do the whole chapter. It's kind of a 6 and 7 to have the ending of 6 goes together with 7, so we'll stop at verse 23, Lord willing, tonight. But the whole theme is covenants and character. We're looking at God's covenant, His promises to His people, and His character that He keeps His promises. And then, of course, we're looking at well, people's character. And sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not. Sometimes they keep their promises to God, and sometimes they don't. And so the idea is that, remember, this author is writing to exiles in Babylon. All these events have long occurred by the time he's writing about them. And he's writing to those exiles in Babylon to remind them that God was never unfaithful. He's always faithful and will remain faithful. It's us who need to be faithful to Him. So, at this present point in chapter 6, under King Jehoram, the northern kingdom of Israel is in a bad place. But as we've been seeing, God is still working through Elisha and, and then those that Elijah is influencing. And so the exiles in Babylon that the author is writing to, they frequently wondered, what about us? Does God care about us? Well, God cares about every size of problem that you and I can face. And so whether, like the exiles, we've been disciplined because of our sin or We've just gone through really difficult times in a fallen world. The author selects two events here in chapter 6 that show us that God cares about all of our problems, whether they're teeny tiny or whether they're nation-altering. So chapter 6, we begin in verse 1, and we're going to start with the small-sized problem. It says in chapter 6, verse 1, And the sons of the prophets said unto Elisha, Behold now, the place where we dwell with you is too straight for us. Let us go, we pray you, unto Jordan, and tank from there every man a beam, and let us make a place there that we may dwell. And he answered, Go for it, go ye. So the context here is there's a challenge facing the school of prophets, most likely that's near Jericho. It says, The sons of the prophets, these are the students, they said unto Elijah, Behold now, the place where we dwell, the word dwell there means to sit down, where we sit down with you, with you means toward your face. So the idea is the lecture hall they had. It's, it's too small. We saw one of these uh, lecture halls, these buildings at the school in Gilgal in 2 Kings chapter 4.38 where Elijah's teaching and they're listening, and then, you know, he says, hey, go prepare dinner. This is likely the school in Jericho, like I said, since that school was closest to the Jordan River, and they say that we got a problem. The building's too straight. It's too narrow, too tight. We're, we're, we got too, many, got too many students to fit in this building. Now, there were at least 100 students at the school in Gilgal. The text doesn't give us the size of Jericho school, but whatever the size, it's bursting at the seams, which I think is an awesome testimony. Because when you think about this time period, I mean, the, Israel had just encountered their most wicked king ever in Ahab, and now his son is ruling, and he's not good either. And yet it's during this time of, with rampant idolatry in the nation and a wicked king that God is still working and he's still changing lives. He's still calling people to serve him. He's still using people to go out and reach other people. And so while the nation's going God, downhill, God's work is on the rise. And when God's work is on the rise, you're inevitably going to run into the problem of needing more space. And so in verse 2, it says, they're asking for permission, let us go, we pray you, unto Jordan. Jer That's why I say it's probably Jericho because it's near the river. Let's go, let us go and go to the Jordan. And we're going to take from the Jordan River every man a beam. And this is just a large piece of wood you would use for a, a weight-bearing beam in the structure. And then let us make a place there. Let's build a school there so we don't have to haul all the wood back to 
wherever the school's at. So, and then we'll, we'll move the school there. And Elijah, after hearing the plan, he says, go you. This is great. Great idea. Go for it. You know, good leaders don't have to have all the good ideas. They don't feel the need to have all the good ideas. I've, I've had times where I've seen people get upset because, you know, well, well that's not, not my idea. Okay, well, so what? You think you've got all the ideas? I'll freely confess to you, I do not have all the ideas. All right? I don't have all the ideas. Like sometimes people will come and they'll say, you know, I, I've just got, you know, God's been stirring my heart and the church should be doing something about this. And I'm like, that, that's awesome. And they're like, okay, what are you going to do about it? I'm like, I don't know. You're the one that God talked to. What did you pray and ask him about? What he wants you to do with that stirring in your heart? It's not, my, not stirring in my heart. It's in your heart. And it's really cool to watch as people go, oh, this is maybe what God's called me to do. Yeah, you're the, you're the one. He tabbed you, not me. So go pray about it, and then let's talk about it. And then they'll go pray, and we'll talk. And if you've ever shared something with me, like over there, like, we should do this, you probably have almost always heard me say, write it down for me, because <laughs> abstract concepts don't work very well. I was driving by the Fairbanks onto I-4 coming home today, and, and they've got that multicolored, I don't even know what it is. It's a bunch of poles or rails. Has anybody here seen it? Am I just, okay, thank you. All right, I'm not crazy, all right? So, and I'm driving by it, and Mike is in the car with me, and I said, I don't get that thing. And it's like, practically speaking, it looks like it's kind of like a rail as you go on the ramp, but it doesn't look like any rail I've ever seen. And he goes, Dad, it's abstract art. I'm like, what is that? That's an oxymoron. He goes, Dad, he said, some people like abstract. He's looking at me now. <laughs> some people like, I like, I like certain aspects of it. And he's explaining it to me. And I'm like, yeah, I'm not on board with that. <laughs> but so I, I don't handle abstract concepts. Well, I handle like something written, something visual in front of me, something I can see and explain. I'll tell people, yeah, okay, now write it down and let's, let's hammer out and then my job, I guess at that point, is I want to be the cheerleader. Oh, yeah, okay, how, can I, how do I help you get it done? How can I, I encourage you to get out the door? Go for it. Take that step of faith. Good leaders don't have to have all the ideas. They also don't need to be the person leading every charge into action. Good leaders ultimately find ways to help other people step out into the things God's leading them to do. Sometimes that means just being the cheerleader. It's a great idea. Go for it. Well, while they are glad to get Elijah's approval on their plan, one particular student believes it's important that Elijah's a part of the work. And so verse 3, one said, be content, I pray you, and go with your servants. And Elijah answered, I will go. And so he went with him, and they went, when they came to the Jordan, they cut down wood. Be content, the idea means that you're in favor of a situation, that you, you're pleased with, or you enjoy a situation. In other words, he says, listen, you told us we could go do this, but if you come with us, everyone's going to see you're in favor of it. You're going to go, this is a great idea. And, and that's going to keep the work going smoothly. And Elijah says, all right, I'll go. I'll chop some trees down with you. I love what one commentator said. He said, there is a remarkable directness, simplicity, and absence of fuss in all that Elijah says and does. I love that. I believe that's how ministry teams are supposed to work. There should be trust and humility and honesty and graciousness. I am not one for the fuss. I'm not. So let's not be a fussy church, right? You know, sometimes I hear people and they're fussing about stuff. And I'm like, where's the tree you need me to chop down? I'm like, just give me an ax. I'll go chop a tree. Well, I want to chop the tree. Oh, well, then you go chop the tree. I'll cheer you on. You're on. I'll hold the tree. Let's not be a fussy church. Verse 5. <laughs> 
But here's the problem now. Here's where we get to the problem. But as one was felling a beam, the axe head fell into the water, and he cried, he said, Alas, master, for it was borrowed. Even with the best ministry teams, there are hiccups. We still make mistakes, and the world we live around in is broken. And you know what? Don't forget that the next time church or serving doesn't go exactly like you want it to go. We make mistakes. The world we live in is broken. Things don't always work out like we want. It's also a good thing to remember for every team environment, you and your spouse, right? That's a team environment, right? People make mistakes. The world around us is broken. Sometimes things don't go exactly like you want it to. Remember that as you have parents. If you're a young person living at home, parents aren't perfect. Your kids aren't perfect. Your coworkers, they're going to make mistakes. Axe heads are going to go flying into the river. All right? Settle that in your heart beforehand. They're going to go flying in the river sometimes. So don't panic. Well, the problem here is that this thing, it said it fell into the water. The word fell means it sank down. That's a problem. I'll explain why in a little bit. But I love it, the guy's response because I relate to it. He goes, alas, which in the, in the Hebrew, it just means, ah. It means, not so, no, no, that really didn't just happen. It's the same word Joshua used to cry out to the Lord after Ai defeated Israel. What is this? It's the same word Jephthah cried out when his daughter was the first thing to exit his house. It's the same word Jehoram used in 2 Kings 3.10 when he presumed God had brought the army into the desert to kill him. I relate to this Hebrew word because when I see the proverbial axe head sinking into the water in my life, my natural bent is to immediately enter an irritated state of denial followed by a warped sense of justice that wishes to place blame. It didn't really happen. That just didn't happen. No, everything's, everything's over. We can get another axe. No, it's over. If somebody just made the axe correctly, or if somebody didn't ask me to do this, or as if either of those responses, denial or blame, will somehow solve the real problem, which is the fact that the axe head is at the bottom of the river. We must not always respond to misfortune by assuming somebody sinned. These guys were in God's perfect will for their lives, working hard for the Lord, doing everything they should have been doing. And misfortune, loss, even suffering happens even when believers are engaged in God's perfect will. So condemnation, either upon yourself or others, isn't the right response. And neither is the right response getting angry at God. I love God's response to Joshua when he goes, Ah, Lord, what are you doing? Why did you send us in here? He blames God at first, and God's response is instructive. God tells Joshua, quit your tantrum and stop blaming me. There's work to be done. There's a problem that needs to be solved. Now, why would losing an axe in the river be a problem? Well, debts were often paid off by work. So if he isn't able to replace the axe head, because he borrowed it, he would need to leave the school to work off his debt. This student faces the prospect now of no longer being able to join in this new construction effort, and then possibly even missing out on future service to the Lord, future training. 
So I totally get why the student would have an ah moment. But there's a lesson found in Elijah's response to his student's panic. Because Elijah doesn't panic, he doesn't place blame, he doesn't even get upset when this happens. He takes the problem to the Lord. Verse 6, and the man of God said, where did it sink? This is the big problem. The Jordan is a muddy river, especially in the part that flows near the Jericho region. At least it is today. When I got to the, the area around this part of, the, of, of Jordan, from my first visit to Israel, I was like, whoa, that's like brown water. It's because of the clay that's around it that makes it brown. And so it's, you can't see anything. Like you, you can't see within a centimeter of the water. So it's not like they can just look and see where it might be. So he says, where, where, where'd it sink? And so he showed him the place. And I love this. Elijah, he cuts down a stick and he throws it in. And it's just the iron, the axe head, it did float. It came right, right up to the top. <laughs> Therefore, he said, take it. <laughs> he had to tell him because the guy's just dumbfounded looking at it. It's floating there. He said, take it up to you. And so he put out his hand and he took it. Iron is more dense than water, so it naturally sinks. Uh, and he said, well, how come a boat can float? You know, well, yes, an axe head, though, is not like an iron boat, which is hollow to reduce the average density of a ship. An axe head is solid, can't float, which makes this a miracle. Now, I know Elijah took the problem to the Lord because if the Lord didn't tell Elijah to do this, the stick would have simply become the axe head's river buddy. That's all that would have happened. It's not like I can just be like, oh, you lost something? You don't come back in a second. Not unless the Lord tells me. Israel didn't have magic, uh, magical make metal float tree branches, okay? There's no rhyme or reason as to why the, a stick would cause the axe head to float unless that's what the Lord told Elijah to do. So, just to be clear, this is not a proof text to approve of you going, going around doing weird things and then justifying it because, well, God told me to. And remember, God would never tell us to do something that contradicts His Word. But when that's settled, in other words, we're not just being weird and we're not going against Scripture, then no matter how much God's instructions make or don't make sense to you, you need to follow them. You need to follow them. I chuckle these days because it's happened so frequently where I'll think to tell a story or I'll be in a conversation with somebody and I'll tell a story, something happened in my life or somebody else's life, and then you just watch their eyes kind of go boom, or they come through the line after a teaching and they go, why did you tell that story? And I go, I don't know, it wasn't even in my notes. I just thought the Lord wanted to share it. And they said, you don't know what happened to me this week. Just don't want to stick in the water. And when we listen to the Lord, well, He can do whatever He wants to do. Because while it's maybe impossible for us to make an axe head float, it's not difficult for God to meet your need. And when God meets your need, there's only one thing to do. You take it. You receive it. Look at Psalm 116. I... I didn't read the whole psalm because it's a little bit longer. But in Psalm 116, the section I want to zero in on is verses 12 through 15. I'm sorry, 12 through 16. 
David, after he's going, he says, I love the Lord. Look at what he's done for me. This is where I was at, but look at what he did for me. And so then he says in verse 12, what shall I render unto the Lord for all of his benefits toward me? Like what, what can I give God back for all that he's done for me? It's a good question, isn't it? And this is what he concludes. I will take the cup of salvation and I will call upon the name of the Lord. I'll receive all that he's giving to me and I'm gonna keep calling on his name, keep looking to him for my answers, keep looking to him for help. And verse 14, he says, I will pay my vows unto the Lord. Now in the presence of all of his people. When he's talking about vows there, he's talking about his sacrifices. He says, I'm gonna, I'm gonna bring my offerings to the Lord. I'm gonna pay my sacrifices to the Lord. I'm gonna keep my promise in the presence of all this people. Verse 15, precious in the sight of the Lord is the death of his saints. I'm gonna keep my vows even if it kills me because that's valuable to him when I give him my whole life. Oh, Lord, he says, truly, I am your servant. I am your servant and the son of your handmaid, and you have loosed my chains. And so he says, I will offer to you the sacrifice of thanksgiving. I will call upon the name of the Lord, and I will pay my vows unto the Lord now in the presence of all his people. What am I going to do? I'm going to receive all the, the blessings and the goodness and the salvation that God offers me. I'm going to continue to cry out to him to rescue me, and then I'm going to give him my whole life no matter what it costs me. That's how we respond to what the Lord's done for us. We receive it, and we give him everything. Well, when we look at what this student went through, pretty cool miracle, right? But the truth is, very few, if any other people, were impacted by this guy's crisis. I mean, it's, no one else was probably looking around. I mean, if you were there and you were a friend, you'd be like, ah, oh, this stinks. But it's not going to, you're not the one who's going to have to leave the work. You're not the one who might have to go into debt for a while to go work off your debt. You're not the one who might have to leave the school. And truth be told, even if this is, even in the worst case scenario, that the ax didn't come back, it's not the most awful problem to run into in life. But God still cared enough to get involved. Isn't that cool? God still cared enough to get involved. Beverly tells a story way better than I do about hairspray. One of the college's requirements that we were at was to spend eight hours a week serving in some capacity. And uh, Beverly got the very posh job of working in the bookstore. I was scrubbing toilets. I don't remember the situation, but one day she got to the bookstore and realized she didn't have any hairspray. She couldn't leave the bookstore, so she said, Lord, would you please provide me with some hairspray? A customer walked into the store, and as the customer was emptying her purse, she put a bottle of hairspray on the counter. I'll let her tell the rest of the story, but you get the point. That's a very simple thing to provide. It's not an absolute need. But God isn't above meeting simple requests, and it doesn't have to be an absolute crisis need to go to the Lord. I've seen God answer so many of my bride's simple requests for simple everyday things. And it has taught me to believe that God cares about everything in my life and to ask for even the small needs that I have. God is interested in every detail of your life. And one of the reasons that we don't receive from the Lord is because we don't ask. James 4.2, it, it, it says, you have not because you ask not. It has some other reasons why you don't receive, but one of them is you don't ask. So let's be those who ask, amen? 
God is not just interested in the small problems that hit you. He's also interested in the big crises that hit you. So let's look at a big-sized problem in, beginning in verse 8. I lost my spot. There we go. Verse 8. Then the king of Syria warred against Israel and took counsel with his servants, saying, In such and such a place shall be my camp. And the man of God sent unto the king of Israel, saying, Beware that you pass not by such a place, for thither the Syrians are come down. And so the king of Israel, he sent to the place which the man of God told him and warned him about, and he saved himself there, not once, nor twice. So what happens here is the word board there means attacked. So Syria invaded Israel, but not in a way where it was like a full-scale war. The Syrian army had invaded Israel, so the king knew, and he went out to meet them, but he didn't know where they were, and they had set up an ambush. Now, we keep seeing Syria and Israel sign treaties, and they break them. They sign treaties, and they break them. Ben-Hadad was every, the king of Syria, was every bit as wicked as Jehoram. So these two kings were always looking for an excuse to attack and break their treaty. So it doesn't tell us where the Syrians invaded, but it does tell us that their plans were not kept secret from the Lord. You know, he says, listen, this is where I'm setting up my troops. We're going to be in an advantageous position. It says in verse 8, in such and such a place shall be my camp. And, and then the man of God said, beware that you don't go to this place, and thither the Syrians are come down. In other words, come down means to trap the Israeli army into a, a disadvantaged bad ground, disadvantaged place to fight. So he's setting up this ambush, but the man of God, Elijah, it says he's sent unto the king of Israel. So it doesn't tell us if, if like Jehoram asked for advice or if Elijah just sent a messenger person and said, hey, by the way, it'll kind of like one of those drive-by warnings you get where somebody just kind of speaks into your life and you're like, oh, I need to pay attention to that. I don't know if that's what it was, but whatever the case, Jehoram, after he gets the warning from Elijah, he sends multiple scouts out to the location. It says he sent, which means he dispatched men, to the place which Elijah had told him and warned him about. And it says he saved himself there, not once, nor twice. So Elisha saved the Israeli army from disastrous ambushes on at least three separate occasions. If that happens to you in your life, that's the point in your life where God's grace is supposed to get your attention. Where you're about to step into a horrible situation and God brings somebody in your life and says, that's a bad idea. And then you check it out and you're like, that is a bad idea. And you step back. And then you go and you try to do something again. And then same thing happens and you step back. And then the third time it happens and same thing happens again, you step back. That's the point where you're supposed to go, Lord, what are you trying to tell me? Because what he's trying to say is stop going that way. Three horrible attack plans, no matter how well thought out by the Israeli leaders, should have got them to start asking the Lord for battle advice, but they didn't. And so, you know, if you're here tonight and you've been doing life your own way and and God's been gracious towards you, that's not his permission to keep going. It's his way of getting your attention. He's saying, return to me. I love you. I'm a good God. You can trust me. Don't use God's grace as a license to stay in sin. Well, after three failed attempts at an ambush, the king of Syria suspects treachery amongst his own leaders. Look at verse 11. 
Therefore, the heart of the king of Syria was sore troubled for this thing, and he called his servants and said to them, Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? And one of his servants said, None, my lord, O king. But Elijah, the prophet that's in Israel, he tells the king of Israel the words that you speak in your bedchamber. Sore troubled. That's the King James way of saying he was in an absolute rage. It means driven like a storm, implying violent action will follow. He had lost it. Brings all of his officers in, and he says, what does he say? Will you not show me which of us is for the king of Israel? Is nobody going to inform on the traitor? One of his servants, one of the officers, he says, none of us are traitors, king. In fact, we've got people loyal to us in Israel, and they've given us the intel that Israel has a secret weapon, the prophet Elisha. He knows what you're thinking when you go to bed. There's nowhere you and I can make plans that God doesn't know. I don't even have to verbalize my plans to anyone. He sees what I say in my heart when I'm lying on my bed. Now, the fact that God knows everything we say in the privacy of our heart and he doesn't destroy us all, is a wonder, (laughs) an absolute wonder. People say, if God is a God of love, why does this happen? I'm like, I proved to you God's of love. We're still breathing. There are times, there are times in life and you look at what's going on and you're just like, just end it. Start over again. It's interesting is the two times God suggested that to his servants, they both said, no, Lord. That's, we know that's not your heart. I think sometimes today if God came and said, listen, I'm going to wipe everybody out and we'll start over with you, and we'd be like, all right, I'm on board. Telling. God loves us. He doesn't want to destroy us. He wants to work in the king of Syria's life, wants to work in the king of Israel's life, even though they're both wicked. But that love and that mercy that God shows us by not destroying us, again, it should never be a license to sin. God's love and His mercy, His grace, it's designed to get my attention. It's designed, His kindness is designed to draw me to repentance. That the king of Syria is still alive, given that God knows his wicked plans, should have gotten the king's attention. Sadly, it doesn't. And now his ire focuses in on Elisha, verse 13. And he, the king of Syria, said, Go and spy where he is, that I may send and fetch him. And it was told to him, saying, Behold, he's in Dothan. Therefore sent he, the, the king of Syria, he sent thither horses and chariots and a great host. And they came by night, and they compassed the city about. They surrounded the city. So the king, he dispatches men to go find out where Elijah is. And then when he finds out where he is, he says, Go get him. In other words, he goes, all right, so the prophet knows what I'm thinking about in my bedchamber. Let's go kidnap us a prophet. We can fix this problem. Let's go kidnap the prophet who hears everything we talk about. Which part of that plan sounds bad? Let's go kidnap the prophet who hears everything we talk about. But that's what stubbornness does to us, right? That's a really bad plan. But that's what stubbornness does to us. We come up with solutions that ignore the God factor, and therefore our plans become doomed to failure, right? 
Well, Dothan is located in the hill country southeast of Megiddo. It's about 12 miles north of Samaria, so they've got to go pretty deep into Israeli territory if they're going to get this guy. And so he sends horses, chariots, and a great army, a strong force. And he sends them to march in through the night, hoping to be undetected so they can get in, get the prophet, get out. Truly mission impossible. Even though if it was, it was at night, if the Syrians could bring a large enough army to surround a city located that deep into Israel, even if they could do that, how are they going to overcome the God who's speaking to the prophet? Especially if the God who's speaking to the prophet doesn't want the prophet to be kidnapped. Now, the fact that they were successful in getting to the city, it shows that Israel had become very weak militarily at this point. Ben-Hadad, he's determined, but determination and grit should not be praised when it's done in stubbornness against the Lord. I'm sure the troops are thinking, our night night march worked, we've got him now. Verse 15, Elijah's servant thinks it's over too. And when the servant of the man of God was risen early and gone forth, behold, a host surrounded the city, both with horses and chariots. And his servant said unto him, our same word, alas, ah! Small problem, big problem, doesn't matter. We react to both sometimes. He didn't know the army was there. It was a shocker. Now, this is not Gehazi, by the way. Remember, he left Elijah's service after he contracted leprosy. This is a new assistant. And he sees it. He says, ah, my master, how shall we do? <laughs> Again, I relate to this word so much, right? He looks out and he sees obstacle. There's an obstacle. Say it isn't so. Why is there an obstacle in my life again? But I know people who live like that. I know very easily I can get like that if I'm not careful. How shall we do? What are we going to do about this? He's running through the list of ideas in his head, panicking because there's no good idea. And I love Elijah's answer. He says to him, fear not. This isn't the problem you think it is. Look at verse 16. He answered, it's Elisha, fear not, for they that be with us are more than they that be with them. Now listen, when God's message is don't be afraid, it's always because someone's frightened. The first thing that we need to do when we're frightened is to slow down and remember that my situation is not a good enough reason to surrender my thoughts and my behavior to the control of fear. That's the first thing you need to do. You have to, you have to say, Will, you have to talk to yourself. You say, Will, this situation is not a good enough reason to surrender my thoughts and my behavior to the control of fear. You have to tell yourself that because fear is going to be a very powerful emotion that's going to try to seize control. Initial feelings of fear are not sinful. I know, I've told this story a lot, but my kids, when they were little, I, I, we would drive in the car at night, and of course, you know that if you're in the back seat at night and your feet don't touch the floor, there are monsters down there, right? Everybody knows that, just like they're under the bed. And so the kids, you know, they'd be in the car, and they'd ah, I'm worried about the monsters down there, and I'd be like, hey, 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 it's okay to feel afraid. I know you can't feel the floor. I get that. I said, that's normal. I said, but it's not okay to stay afraid. I said, you need to 
tell yourself, I know there's no monsters down there. I know I don't feel the floor and I don't know what's down there, but I know there's no monsters down there. And that's not a good enough reason for me to throw a fit right now. The initial feeling of fear is not sinful, but surrendering to those feelings by feeding that fear into my thoughts and into my behavior, that, that's when it becomes sinful. <clears throat> and we have very good reasons to not surrender to those feelings. In Romans chapter 8, verse 31, we have a beautiful word from God. It says, what shall we say then to these things? If God be for us, who could be against us? Right? I mean, think about it. Think about it. If God be for us, who can be against us? God being for me is more than enough to create a vast distance between what the enemy brings to bear and what is brought to bear to help us. He says, those that are with us are more than, more than they out there. There's a vast difference between, when we count this out, there's a word there that means numerous. Numerous are those who are with us. And the idea that he's saying it's in a vast space away from whatever the number is that represents them. It's not even close. It's not like, well, God might edge it out a little bit. No, no. There's a vast difference between the one who's with us and the one who's with them. What's really cool is that God often brings more than himself to bear to help us, even when we can't see it. Look at verse 17. And Elisha prayed and he said, Lord, I pray you open his eyes that he may see. And the word here for see, it's interesting. It means to see to such a degree that you understand. It doesn't just mean to see ocularly with your, with your eyes. It means to see to such a degree that you comprehend. He says, Lord, open his eyes so he can see and really understand what I just said. And the Lord opened the eyes of the young man, again, confirming this is a new assistant. And he saw, and behold, the mountain was full of horses and chariots of fire all around Elijah. The whole mountainside was filled with horses and chariots of fire. Now, this is not something we see in the Bible a lot, but Elisha had seen whoever these supernatural beings are before. Remember in 2 Kings chapter 2, verse 11, when his, his master, Elijah, was taken up into heaven? It says he saw chariots of fire and the whirlwind, all that kind of stuff. So he had seen beings like this before. I personally think they're angels. In Psalm 104, verse 4, it says that God made the angels to serve him as a flame of fire. So I think it's probably angels. But whether they're angels or whether there's something else that God made, I'm glad they're on my team. You see, the Syrian army thought they'd surrounded Elijah, but they were the ones who were surrounded, even if they didn't know it. God had the situation fully in control. And that's the second thing that you need to do when you're frightened. You need to remind yourself that God always has every situation fully in his control. Everything that happens to you, whether it's a real tragedy or just an annoying obstacle, all of it has to pass through God's hands before it gets to you. Now, where we struggle sometimes is to say, yeah, but okay, so that's great, but why did God let it pass through his hands? Why did God let it get to me? Why did God allow this to happen? 
And sometimes we make the mistake of trying to figure it out. We're like, try and understand what God's trying to teach me. And, you know, I remember the one time I was whining to the Lord about something, and the Lord, in that still small voice, said, this isn't about you. Not trying to teach me anything? No. <laughs> this isn't about you. Can you just let me do my thing? I'm working in other people's lives, too. And they're going to see what you're going through. It's for them. It's not for you. Oh. So what do I do? Just walk through it with me. I got everything under control. Well, while you and I may not fully understand what God is doing, we need to trust, we need to decide to trust that God is fully in control. That He will enable me to face the obstacle entirely different than the ah. Verse 18 things get real. It says the army comes down. Verse 18, when they came down to him, Elijah prayed unto the Lord and said, smite this people, I pray you with blindness. And the Lord smote them with blindness according to the word of Elijah. So the army, they descend, came down, means they descended upon the city. Their plan was to secure the city and demand they turn over Elisha. Elijah says, Lord, I'm asking you, would you smite them with blindness? And God said, okay. Smote him with blindness. I love Elijah's simple prayer. No demands of God, just a request made with confidence in what God could do. And so, God said yes, and bam, everything changed, didn't it? In just a heartbeat, everything changed. Sometimes you might be thinking, yeah, but we're out of time. God doesn't work on your deadlines. Doesn't work. I mean, of course, the servant's deadline, when he came out and he woke up in the morning and he looked out on the, you know, on the city wall or something, and he looked out, he's like, ah, there's an army out there, we're surrounded. He probably thought it was way past deadline. But God let it get to the point where the army's descending upon the city, and then Elijah prays, and that's when he turns the tide. And everything completely changed in that moment. If you're still breathing, it's not too late for God to come through. Well, Ben-Hadad, the king of Syria, his plan didn't factor the Lord. Sounded great, foolproof. March in the night, send a big enough army, snatch and grab, get the prophet out of there. But when you and I don't plan with correct information, my plan falls apart. How are you going to force a city to comply with your demands when you can't see? You're helpless. And even if they did give Elijah up, how are you going to get him back to your camp if you don't know how to get back to your camp because you can't see. And yet, what's sad is that even though they're blind, they still demand they turn over Elijah because Elijah has to answer them. Elijah said unto them, this is not the way. Neither is this the city. Follow me and I'll bring you to the man whom you seek. But he led them to Samaria. It's a simple truth we often ignore. We don't know everything. It's a really important truth, by the way. We don't know everything. Therefore, it's always unwise to lean on your own understanding. Proverbs 3, 5, and 6, trust in the Lord with all your heart and lean not on your own understanding, but in all things, take him into the account, right? And he'll direct your paths and make them straight. Well, Elisha, <laughs> this is not the way. 
He relieves the city leaders of having to make a decision by dealing with the Syrians himself. He says, the guy you're looking for isn't here. I'll take you to him. Now, this is really a bizarre moment because I don't know if like the Syrians are just not letting on that they're blind. Perhaps they're so stubborn that they think they're still in control of the situation. But they go along with it. And he leads them right to the capital city of Israel, to Samaria. Verse 20, and it came to pass when they were coming to Samaria that into, not to the city, but inside the city. That Elijah said, Lord, open the eyes of these men that they may see. And the Lord opened their eyes and they saw and behold. Anytime he said we're behold, it means somebody's shocked. Behold, they were in the middle of Samaria. Now, Samaria is about a four-hour trip from Dothan, where Elijah was. So a trek like this does raise questions. How would they travel that far without being able to see? Why would they follow Elijah literally so blindly? And did no one in Israel notice a small army moving toward the capital? What did Elijah say when he got to the front of the gate? Who are these guys? They're with me. They look like Syrians. They are. Let me in. It's not exactly like him and the king are on a good, in a good terms. They don't get along. Jerome hates Elijah. We're going to see in the next chapter when he pronounces a famine upon the land that he basically says, ah, if that kid prophet's head's not on a platter by the end of the day, I'm going to be on the platter. He doesn't like Elisha. Elisha's here. He's got a bunch of Syrians. Oh, bring him in. I don't know how any of this worked out, you know. Some have suggested that the the Syrian's blindness was like a mental fog, not actual blindness. And and of course, that would have to happen to the troops in in the city as well and all that kind of stuff. And personally, I think that's making it too complicated. I, I just, I don't think the author's trying to give us every tidbit of information. I think he's telling us enough of what happened to make his point. And his point is, that God cares about the big things too. He cares about nations and armies and how they affect the people in them. And so I'm going to take it at face value and figure that if God can blind an entire army, He has the ability to get them to Samaria while they're blind. But when they can see again, behold, the word again, it conveys shock. This is not where we thought we would be. And well, they should be shocked. They thought they had Elisha surrounded, but now they realize they're the ones surrounded. Well, that would create a very tense situation. Verse 21. And the king of Israel said unto Elijah when he saw them, My father, shall I smite them? Shall I smite them? He's got a little bit too much blood in the eyes, you know. Kill them all. This obviously caught the king by surprise too, but in his mind, it was a triumphant surprise. And yet he does something that's strange for him, out of character. He asks Elijah what to do. He says, my father, which is a term of great respect, and rightfully so, because the only reason his army hasn't been ambushed is because of Elijah's help. The only reason he has the upper hand here is because Elijah brought the army to him. Yet despite the respect, he's got blood in his eyes. He says it twice because he's showing his eagerness. He wants to do this. And it's good that he asked Elijah because that's not why Elijah brought them to the king. Verse 22, Elijah answered and said, you shall not smite them. Would you smite those who you have taken captive with your sword and with your bow? 
it wasn't Jehoram's normal practice. It wasn't Israeli normal practice to execute prisoners of war. And this shows us just how frustrated the king was with Syria, that he's, he wants to go against even his own normal way of treating prisoners of war. I think it also shows that he's frustrated that he has to depend upon Elisha right now for military matters. He wanted these Syrians out of the way, and if they're dead, he wouldn't need Elisha anymore. Why is it that we have this tendency to hate a life of trust in God? Why is it? Like our flesh just hates the idea of just walking by faith, just trusting the Lord. Can I encourage you? It's best to deal with that problem as soon as possible. (laughs) Because a life of trusting God is far better than spending your energy to eliminate all the possible obstacles to the life you want to achieve. This is, by the way, why the world will bring itself, the Bible tells us, the world will bring itself to the brink of annihilation just before Jesus comes back. Because when you have multiple nations willing to do whatever it takes to, uh, to the other nations who are getting in their way, that's the only possible outcome with the weapons we have today. Elijah tells them, truth is, king, these are not your prisoners. They're my guests. And so he tells them, I want you to feed them. You shall not smite them. Instead, he says, set bread and water before them that they may eat and drink, and then go, return to their master, the king of Syria. King of Syria, Jehoram needs to understand something about me, and if you kill them, that's not going to happen. So you're going to treat these prisoners of war like we're at peace. You don't just eat down and have a meal with anybody. You're going to treat them like we're at peace so that when they return to their king, the king will know that Elisha isn't the problem. Elisha works for the God of Israel. And you, king of Syria, Ben-Hadad, you will never be able to go toe-to-toe with the true and living God. Verse 23, wonder of wonders, Jehoram does what he says. He prepared great provision. It means a banquet, a huge feast for them. And when they had eaten and drunk, he sent them away, and they went back to their master. And as a result, so... The bands of Israel came no more into the land of Israel. Now, that sounds like, okay, he called off the invasion. That's not what he did. The word here for bands, it refers to this raiding party. In other words, the the writer's not saying that Syria didn't invade anymore, because we're going to read in the very next verse, verse 24, and it came to pass after this that Ben-Hadad, king of Syria, gathered all his hosts and went up and besieged Samaria. He's talking about these raiding parties to kidnap Elijah. He stopped sending in raiding parties which teaches us two things about how the king of Syria responded. First, it shows me that he did realize that the God of Israel was way bigger than he originally thought. So he wasn't going to try to outsmart the Lord again. But the second thing it shows me is that he didn't get the point. You can't bring a big enough gun to outgun God. Next time he brings his whole army and he just marches right in. No ambush. We're just going to march in. And we'll get to that next Sunday night, Lord willing. But you can't bring a big enough army to outpower God. God cares about the nation of Israel. And unless you're his instrument of discipline, no army can defeat them. And by the way, that God cares about Israel is a lesson we must remember today. 
Because even though Israel may be in the land right now as nationally, generally, in unbelief in their Messiah, they are there because God still cares about them. And God will keep his promises to them despite their unbelief. Just like this was a time of unbelief and he cared about them and he kept his promise to them. God cares about all problems, both great and small. And so whether it's a lost tool or you're surrounded by an army of kidnappers, Jesus cares. And so I ask you tonight, do you believe that? Do you believe he cares? And do you look to him for supernatural help in all things? We can have lots of responses to the obstacles or the crises we find in our lives. But if our response is going to be some form of, ah, <laughs> I got to grab control of the situation, or ah, I don't know what to do, life's over, or the various variations of what an ah can look like in your life, if that's our response instead of, all right, Lord, let's take this to you, we usually make bad decisions. So instead, let's be those who call upon the name of the Lord like we sang, I will call upon the Lord, for he alone is strong enough to save. Amen? Let's all stand. Lord, we thank you so much for your faithfulness to your promises. Lord, we thank you that you kept your covenant to your people. We see it. We've read about it right here. Lord, you kept your covenant to the individuals in Israel. You were there for that student. So, Lord, we see your character, and we declare that you are faithful. But Lord, that you're faithful means you're worthy of our trust. And so just in a fresh way tonight, we say, Lord, whatever crises or obstacle we got going on right now, we're going to bring that situation, that person, that, that thing that makes us just want to go, ah, we bring it to you. And instead of saying, alas, Lord, what are we going to do? We say, Lord, we're trusting you that you're already working and that you're going to lead us through this thing, whatever, whatever that may look like. Lord, for every person right now that maybe they're thinking about something specific that they're just saying, Lord, I'm going to trust you in the midst of this. Will you fill them with an awareness of how much you love them, that you care about them, you care about their crises, you care about their problem, whether it's an axe head or it's an army of kidnappers, Lord. As they're trusting you, will you encourage them? In Jesus' name I pray, amen.